this series was laid heavy, heavy on my heart, and the elders were in, in cahoots on this as well. And so I just think it's so vital, you guys, um, to pause for a little bit and talk on prayer, um, but still fully committed to the exposition of Scripture and plan on going back to Genesis 19 and finishing out my preaching career at Pacific Coast Bible Church in Genesis. So, <clears throat> um, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be, and I want to read the context that comes behind the text that my brother just read. So, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father God, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. I just I think of these 66 books, think of the lives that have been taken, the blood that has been spilt, the tireless effort, all powered by the Spirit of God to have the holy, inerrant, inspired word from God for His people in a book, in our language, on our lap this morning. Father, the story of how this book has ended up here in our laps is is supernatural. And I'm grateful to you, Father, for your preservation of the Word. God, I pray for PCBC and for the church collective in this world Father, that we would be oh so careful to be a people of prayer and a people of the Word and a people of the Gospel. There is so much going on right now. So much anger, animosity, division, suffering, martyrdom. And Father, Your Word remains just as rock solid as ever. The gospel is just as potent, is just as powerful as it has ever been. And Father, we have access to you 24-7, always. So Lord, you have most certainly granted us an incredible arsenal to grow in grace and to take a beating from this world while looking to you as our leader and as our God. So gracious Father, please help us not to be soft. 
Help us to be strong, Lord God, strong in grace, strong in the knowledge of the truth, and desirous to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For, Lord, this world that hates you and is at animosity with you is our mission field. And help us, Lord, to be oh so careful to carry carefully the truth to this world. Be with us now as we step into this text again, Lord, for your glory. Amen. When I was in high school, I remember one night sitting there with my best friend and his mom, and we were t- chatting about what we wanted to do. When we, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? And I remember my buddy Jordan, he was talking about missionary work. He wanted to be a foreign missionary and travel. He didn't necessarily say the place. He just said foreign missionary wanted to travel and serve in that capacity. <clears throat> and then his, uh, the, the, I was, that was Jordan. And then my other buddy's mom said, and what do you want to do? What, what's your dream? And I said, uh, Pastor Jerry lives my dream every day was my answer. That was, he, Pastor Jerry Kennedy was my pastor. And I remember using the term and the phrase, and I'm sure you hear, you've heard it your whole life if you've been in church, we use the phrase, I'm going into ministry, right? I'm going to go into ministry. People talk like that all, all the time. You hear preachers talk about it, you hear missionaries talk about that. Um, it's, it's not the best use of terms in reference to going into ministry. The day you were born again, you went into ministry. Let it sit. Because we, in our culture, we've bought into this very strange thought that we have the professional ministers and then the lay ministers. Even the fact when people say lay pastor drives me crazy. Because there's no such division in Scripture. You're in the ministry. And the tough part is when people talk about that, the issue at hand is there's no gaining out of it. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, you, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't have to take the gospel, don't have to share the word, don't have to study the word, walk in grace. You are in the ministry. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as serving as an elder in a local church and full-time pastoral ministry. I, I believe in that. I believe that's biblical. I can show you from passages of Scripture. But this concept of the full-time, the not full-time, if you're breathing, you're in full-time ministry. And what's saddening at times to me is when I meet somebody who may retire from full-time ministry, quote-unquote, or they come off the mission field, or they lose their spouse, or something along those lines, and I hear this phrase, and I've heard this phrase, you probably have too. The hardest part for me is now, I don't have a ministry. And that's where... You want to be, I want to be pastoral, I want to be loving and kind and, and hear them out. But in reality, that's not true. You absolutely have a ministry. Every last person in Christ in this room has ministry. You are in the ministry. It's not youth ministry. This is what's the huge mistake churches have made. Youth ministry, uh, college ministry, um, not as young ministry, uh, <laughs> Uh, the different categories of ministry, and you say, oh, well, I'm in this ministry, I'm in this ministry, I'm the associate pastor, I'm the youth pastor, I'm the bowling pastor, and it's like, oh my goodness, hold on a second. 
Because the reality is, the Bible doesn't make that division. The, the division he makes is, if you are a saint, you're in ministry. If you're not a saint, you're not in ministry. Why would you be in ministry and I'm born again? It just it look, it, it, The thing is, the tasks look different, but you're in the ministry. Beloved, you're in the ministry. And I like calling it the ministry, because it's the ministry of the gospel to a dead world. <clears throat> but in particular, when I speak to somebody like that, the ministry that I think at times gets a real bad, shoved in the corner, covered in dust, ignored spot, is the ministry of intercessory prayer. Isn't it interesting, you guys, and this is how I started this series, that when we say, I guess the last thing I can do is pray, or all we can do now is pray, is ridiculous, theologically speaking. It, it, that is so far off the page of the Bible when we talk like that, if we talk like that. Perhaps you don't talk like that. I've spoken that. I feel ashamed of that when I've said that in the past. Because reality is the very first thing we can do is pray. We get to pray. You feel embarrassed. I feel embarrassed when you think about it theologically. Think carefully with your Bible and you go, wait a minute, I said the last thing we could do, all we can do now is to go before the throne of the sovereign of the universe. That's, that's insane. It's like Dan over here with this, with this rock and I try to move the rock and I've got this lever and I'm moving the rock and moving the rock and there's 14 buddies over here and I'm like, oh man, well, come on over. Where at the very first, I should have said, guys, come over here and help me with this. God in his grace has called us to ministry. All of us are in ministry. And I will say one of the most greatest slash neglected ministries in the church of Jesus Christ is prayer. One of the greatest slash most neglected ministries in the church of Jesus Christ is prayer. I can prove that. Ask anybody if, if they're satisfied with their prayer life. And ask every single elder in every single local church what meeting is usually the smallest gathering. It's a prayer meeting. It's very telling. Very telling. So, with that being the case, God's been stirring up my heart a bit on, on the topic of prayer, and so I come to the elders and I say, all right, guys, what, what do you think if we did a short little series of the Lord's Prayer? Go back to there. And, and they all said, yes, and here we are. And what's interesting is as I've been reading this, my own heart has been even more pressed than it was before we started the series, because as I read this, I go, wow, Jesus is giving a full um, explanation of the tenets of our prayer life. Not, not a repetitive thing, not just say this after a funeral or say this after a wedding. Um, it's not just there for a, a mindless repetition. He's given it to us for the sake of our prayer life, that this grows. And that being the case, you ask the question, what are the tenets? Well, the first half that we've seen thus far is God's glory. First off, our Father who is in heaven, he's my Father, but he's also the sovereign of the universe in heaven. Hallowed be your name. We don't say hallowed very often. I don't say that in the week very often. Holy be your name. And remember, name is not just the name of God, but is the person of God. So what are we saying? I want God to be seen and treated as holy. What's it mean to be holy? Different, set apart, special, particular, different than everything else. I want God treated differently than everything else we handle and talk about in a week. 
That's the prayer that Jesus is saying. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Now, I know, guys, that we can become so callous to truth because we hear it. We hear preaching. We've been Christians for a long time. We read the Bible. We've heard this said at numerous funerals. But stop for a second. Think about this. Jesus, think about this. Christ is there with his disciples, and somebody grabs him by the arm and goes, get over here. Jesus, what would you say is the first thing you want us to pray about? You, Jesus Christ, the sovereign of the universe, nothing was made apart from him, and he sustains all things. What is number one to you? I want God to be treated as holy. What else? That his kingdom, his reign, his rule come. That his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see people not only recognize God as holy, but live their lives as God is holy. I want them to walk in obedience to who he is. So this is why it's so beautiful when somebody gets saved. They see God for who he is, they see themselves for who they are, and their life starts to act like it. The truth hits them up. And so here's one of the greatest ministries we have, and here is the shepherd himself, the good shepherd, saying this is what that ministry should have within it. So I think in firearms, it's just the way my head works, He's given us the gun, and he's given us the rounds. He's saying, here's the, here's the instrument, here's the prayer, and here's the tenets of the prayer. I want you to go, I want you to take this, and I want you to push it out to the corners of your life. This is not just a repetitive thing, this is the corners of your life. These tenets here, have them grow, make them a part of your prayer. How much of your prayer life has God's glory in view? Because it sure seemed to matter to Jesus. And I can prove that not just from this text, but I encourage you at some point, jot down for now, John chapter 17, and just listen to Jesus pray to the Father and say, what's important to him? Jesus, what's important to you? Beloved, you will hear over and over and over Jesus make reference to the Father's glory. Over and over and over again. So here we are, kind of at a fork in the road now in our study this morning, because we're shifting from the particular petitions of God's glory and his kingdom and his will being done, him as father, all of that. that we're, we're, that we're shifting gears now and coming to requests for the one praying. Remember, this is the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer. Jesus doesn't ask for forgiveness. Jesus doesn't pray for that. We pray for that. Christ is laying this out as a prayer for his disciples, and we're shifting now. This, real quick, just sidebar, side note, <clears throat> it's not that these are at odds with one another. They're perfectly in sync with one another, but there is a level of priority here. My daily bread comes second to my desire for God's glory. You recall Jesus saying that my meat and my drink is to do the will of him who sent me? Jesus, what's more important? You want to have lunch or do you want to glorify the Father? Abundantly evident from his life. But they're not at odds in the sense that this isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing, and I'll explain why here in just a bit. Uh, the ESV Study Bible had a good footnote here. It says, Jesus gives his disciples an example to follow when praying. The prayer has a beginning invocation and six petitions that give proper priorities. 
The first three priorities focus on the preeminence of God, while the final three focus on personal needs in a community context. I'll nail, hit that nail in just a little bit, but that community context is something that gets very missed in the text, I think. So, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's your bird's eye view, and now, shifting gears, give us this day our daily bread. The transition from three petitions for God's preeminence to asking God for personal needs within a community context. Biblical prayer will always involve both of these categories. True prayer as a believer will have these categories. God's glory, God's preeminence, God's honor, and my need. God invites his children to come to him with their requests. I didn't say this in the first service, um, not because I wanted to conceal it, but because I didn't think of it. So I want to share this with you. And it's something I've been toying with a little bit in my, in my mind and in my heart and in my prayer life personally. How do you think God responds to you coming to him in prayer? And don't answer, just, just mull that around, around a little bit with me. It's interesting sometimes that folks think, I can't go to him in prayer with that because I've prayed about it too much. I can't go to him with prayer about that because it's too overwhelming. I can't go to him in prayer for that because there's sin involved, and I know my heart is sinful, and once I get myself clean, I can go to him. I can't go to him with that because I, I need to do some things before I come to him with that. I don't think I'm speaking nonsense. I think you probably know what, where I'm going, that the fact is some folks are hesitant to pray because they're waiting to make themselves clean before they come to the one who does the cleansing. And so they feel held up in their prayer life. Beloved, can I just remind you of a fact? He already knows. You're not hiding anything from him. You're not concealing anything from him. It's the little child with their hands over their eyes, and they go, nobody can see me as long as I don't think they can. No, they're looking at you the whole time. Beloved, God knows. And so, in his grace, perhaps he would move you in your heart to recognize his omniscience and recognize the fact that he already knows, and that brings you to prayer. Now I'm speaking more in my own practice, and then I end up going into prayer, and I find out that he melts my heart in that moment, and in that time, I go, wow, that's right, I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved by making myself good enough to come to him. But there are folks who have told me over my lifetime People have made this statement, I've gone to him so many times, I just don't think he wants to hear it anymore. It's amazing what we can start to believe in our depressed state. When our emotions are running high, what we can start to believe about God that has nothing to do with the Word of God. And God's self-revelation slaps us across the face and says, snap out of it. Let me show you a couple verses. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. I would imagine if I called you out, you could say this by memory. But I want to read it. 
Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to pick it up with verse 4 because this is kind of a chunk that's connected. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. <laughs> Do not be anxious about anything. Well, how on earth am I supposed to do that? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please notice, guys, verse 6. It's, these are very important. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. This is God's invitation to you to come to him with what's heavy on your heart. You go, well, he may not understand. Well, let me remind you, he's God. Of course he understands. He understands better than you understand. He understands better than I would ever understand. 1 Peter 5, 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. I've said this one a few different times, um, just in quotes, over the weeks of preaching through this. I'm going to pick up verse 6, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all, all, all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. It's one thing, beloved, to cast your anxieties and pour out your heart to somebody that you pay at the end of your session with. And they go, I got another person coming in. Thank you. Here's your money. And they bolt. It's far different than when you cast your cares on somebody you love, or better yet, somebody who loves you. When you cast your anxieties onto somebody and they hear you out and they don't immediately rush to getting you better, let me fix you, they listen intently and they say, wow, that's hard. Can I pray with you? Can I, can I just be here for you in the midst of that? That's some of the most powerful response we can give to each other. But then put that times infinity to think of the sovereign of the universe says, I'll listen because I care for you. I know absolutely everything about you. Even the secrets that you've never told those closest to you, I'm fully aware of. I know you in a depth that you don't even know yourself. And with that knowledge, I truly care for you, and I want you to pour your anxieties out on me. Beloved, that's an invitation from the king of the universe to you. The scripture says that we have access to him by grace. And so these passages, uh, James 4, 2 is another one. I'm not going to turn there, but if you're just jotting that down. These passages tell us that God, his demeanor towards us in reference to our prayer is in no way fed up with you, tired with you, irritated, or just discouraged with what you're bringing to him. It's a loving, tender-hearted, sovereign king who already knows and wants to hear you speak and pour it out to him. How many times, beloved, have you been so wrung out and so stressed over some issue 
And when you've poured your heart out to a friend, you go, man, I feel better. I was riding with a police officer a couple years ago, and he was just very chatty that day. And by the time we were done, he said, I really needed this. And I didn't know that. He didn't know that. I was just, I was just riding with him, but he, he poured his heart out. He said, I really needed this. Now, just so you know, I changed nothing in reference to his circumstances in life at all. But the fact that he poured that out to, to another human being changed everything. It works this exact same way when we go to the Father in prayer, we pour our heart out to him. He may not change your circumstances. Most often, honestly, he changes you in your circumstances. I heard James Boyce say one time, and it's a loose quote, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he said, let's, let's be reminded that the God you're asking to remove the circumstance never had to put it there in the first place, so why is it there? Perhaps he's accomplishing a task with the circumstance. So no, the living God awaits your prayer. Um, This relationship we have with him is not because he is not faithful and ready to hear. It's because we are unfaithful and fail all the time in communing with him. So, here's this prayer request. Give us this day our daily bread. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when I, if I were to talk about bread that appears out of nowhere and shows up for the day? <laughs> I set myself up, set myself up completely for that one. Yeah. Okay. So, um, if, if you can have carbs... Let me, let me do this for the sake of my dear brother McRae. What, what, Old Testament, what Old Testament story comes to mind? Man in the wilderness. What was the response to the man in the wilderness over a period of time? They complain over it. We're so sick of this manna that you so kindly provide. Amazing, amazing. But... You know, it's, it's okay, guys, because we're way different than those Israelites. We would never complain about God's gracious gift over and over again. So, but that's what came to my mind as I thought about this particular prayer request. Is, and I wonder if that was in the mind of our Lord when he said this. There's nothing in the text that says that, and I, I understand. But for him to say, give this day our daily bread, I can't go. But man, that was God's provision to the Israelites daily. And it you know, was destroyed at the end of the day. And those who hide it, it's going to be destroyed by the end of the day because God's showing, you are dependent upon me. I'm not dependent upon you. You're my people. And I'm showing my strong arm in saving you. I can't help but think that that was probably in the mind of our Lord when he said this. But again, I don't know. So this prayer is, give this day, give us this day our daily bread. I want to break this down um, and think of just some of the words used here. Number one, give. This is a gift from the sovereign God. Not you owe it, not pay up, but give. God, grant us this. Now, real quick, you guys, just so you're tracking with me, this has far more to do with, uh, not far more to do with than just bread. 
So this is not just, Lord, give me some food. No, what he's getting at here is the necessities to sustain you in life, the needed sustenance to continue physically in this life. Because after all, our desire is to my Father in heaven, I want his kingdom to come, I want his will to be done, I want his name to be hallowed, and I want to be a part of that. But a guy's got to eat. And so we have a very tangible, practical prayer request here where he's saying, and Father, would you provide the needed sustenance in order to keep us going for the sake of your glory? Does God know you need it? Of course it does. The text says that. God already knows what you need. But there's something so sweet and particular about coming to him, recognizing him as the giver of every good and perfect gift, and him providing that for you. And again, give, not owe, revealing the dependency upon God's gracious gift that he gives to us. Daily, only found here in the Lord's Prayer, referring to the amount of food that is needed for each day. If we are to seek his name, to be hallowed, and so on and so forth, we need to be cared for in this way. Please notice that the prayer is given in community. I find this very interesting. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a, there's a community prayer going on here. This is given to the people of God, not just the person of God. This is not just individual. This is us as a people asking the Lord to provide, to keep us going. This is a model for God's people throughout the years of Christianity. Again, this is a model throughout the years of Christianity. The Lord has given us these building blocks of what our prayer lives look for, and there is an actual thing right here in the text where we petition the Father to allow us to be sustained. Just as the manna in the wilderness was provided and showed up, there we are again saying, Lord, would you provide for us? The scripture commands us to not worry. It tells us to be anxious for nothing. And it tells us to go to him in prayer for our needs. Now, there's something... I think can slip into our Christian worldview that is debilitating as believers. Okay? I want you to track with me on this one. Have you ever heard the phrase, the debtor's ethic? Heard that term before, maybe? I don't know. You did in the first service. <laughs> but the debtor's, the debtor's ethic. Here's what it is. It's, it's um, something built in us when somebody does something good for you the natural response is, I need to pay him back. Simple illustration, somebody invites you over for dinner, they put over a big spread on their table, and then they're like, okay, now that you've eaten, you leave, and then you're like, we should have them over too. Now, usually it's just because you just want to spend time with the people, but sometimes when somebody gives you a gift, the reaction is, well, I feel like we should give them something back instead of just being a receiver. Some of us, by the way, are awful receivers. I, I will say this, one of my favorite pieces of Pacific Coast Bible Church, of this local community church, is the servant's heart of our people. But some people in this church are horrible at receiving. And I will say that I'm one of those. It's hard, because you love to serve. It's fun to serve, right? And then somebody goes, well, we'd like to do this for you. Now, real quick, I'm very good at receiving coffee, but there's other things that I struggle at receiving. That concept of the debtor's ethic, there's something built in us where we go, 
I can't just keep receiving. I have to pay him back. Here's where it's lethal, beloved. When that slides into our mental capacity, when we start thinking in reference to God with that. And you go, no way. That's nuts. Nobody would think like that. Oh, yeah? I've been to camps where I've heard somebody speaking at a camp, and the statement, you know, the statements are made. God's done so much for you. Now, what are you prepared to do for God? What's the answer? Think about my question. What are you prepared to do for God? Nothing. You aren't prepared to do anything for him. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. This is, this is massive. This is a complete paradigm shift in the life of a believer. When the living God says, you're the receiver, I'm the giver. You never pay me back. It doesn't work like that. Our relationship to God is not this one-to-one thing where he gives us and then we pay him back. So he saves me and then I pay him back with a life of devotion. No, the life of devotion is still his work. He's still doing it all. And this is where it gets tricky because people say, wow, I just feel like I should pay him back after all that he's done. Well, there's numerous factors there. Number one, he's in need of nothing from you. At all. The living God is totally, perfectly satisfied in himself and has no need for you. But in his grace and mercy, he has created you and made you. But beloved, can I remind you a biblical principle that's so crystal clear, you were made to shine his glory, not pay him back to rob him of his glory. That's so hard for us at times because that debtor's ethic slides in there so easily where we think, man, I just all, I got to give something back to God. You can't give back to God. You weren't designed to give back to God. You don't owe, well, let me rephrase that. You owe him everything, and you are incapable of giving him anything he lacks. So that being theologically, I think biblically sound, here's the part that I find amazing, is that God is glorified in us receiving and him giving. Our dependency, I remember reading a sermon by Jonathan Edwards in high school titled, God Glorified in the Dependency of Man. And hearing Edwards expound and give this argumentation that God is actually glorified in our dependency upon him as the sustainer, as the one who is worthy of all glory and honor, not as one who did something good so he could get something back. That is not a relationship to him. Why all that? Because the text says give. And that's not evil. That's beautiful. God wants to give. God loves to give. Remember, beloved, this was his plan from the whole get-go. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody caused this to happen. God, in his sovereign love, chose to pour his love out on us while we were yet sinners. This is why the essence of the Christian life is gratitude, not payback, not debt. It's a heart that is so filled with gratitude to the Father who has provided everything and continues to provide 
everything. Another note that is a hard note for all of us that live in this country. Please notice the word daily in your Bible. That it says, give us this day our daily bread. The concept there is that the Lord would give us sustenance for the purpose of keeping us going. Right? That's the concept. Very simple. You knew that before we even started this message this morning. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, give us what we need to keep going. That's all it's saying. Right? Why is that tricky in our country? Because our country is one of the most ease-filled, stockpiling countries there is. There are people in our world who today would pray this prayer and mean it. Meaning, they would say, give me enough water so that I'm alive tomorrow morning. I haven't prayed this prayer and meant it, ever, in this country. I've asked the Lord to sustain me, but daily bread? I go to Costco for months of bread. And I wonder at times, beloved, if we put ourselves at a huge disadvantage spiritually with all of our ease. Why? Because then I don't even recognize my dependency on Him. I need Amazon. Well, yeah, God too, but I need Amazon. I need Costco. Not Costco. They're going to close Costco. What am I going to do without Costco? Well, God too. I don't know. I tell you, in this country, it's fascinating because we have such a built-in, brilliant way of acting as if he's not even present because we're at such ease. I think, to some level, beloved, this text slaps all of us across the face as comfort-driven people. So what's the answer? We'll sell everything, give it to the poor, and then follow him, right? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm asking, because I don't really care about your possessions, unless you have a Harley-Davidson, any of you, then I care about your possessions. I don't really care about your possessions. What I'm curious about is where your heart is at in reference to this prayer, asking the Lord, Father, keep me going for the sake of the gospel. That's, that's, that's what concerns me. And I don't just mean about you. That's what concerns me about me is what's, what is Dan's life for? Do I want the Lord to sustain me so that way I can have more stuff or more prestige or whatever this world can afford, or do I'm saying, Father, sustain me for the goal that my life, Dan Mason's life, 36 years old, praying that he gives me more years for his name's sake. Is that the heartbeat? Or have we bought into this silly system that I'm here for me? That is the lie, that is the deepest, darkest, ugliest lie in this world that you're here for you. No, Lord, grant me the sustenance for today for the sake of your name. That's the first half of this prayer is your name. Notice in the text, it never says, Father, give me prestige, give me ease, give me comfort. It's nowhere in the prayer. It's forgive me my sin, help me to forgive others, sustain me, and help me live for your glory. Done. That's why you exist. 
and is so unbelievably counterculture and counter my sinful nature for my prayer life to have those tenets in them. And so he says, in moderation, pray for the sustenance needed to continue on in this life for the sake of the gospel. And if the motive is to get all you can and have as much ease as you can, that is a dark lie that so many around us, and us at times, I'm sure, believe. So let me wrap up this way, guys. In coming to God for his care, we're declaring within our own hearts that he is the creator and sustainer of his creation. As we come to God with the deepest needs of our hearts, we are comforted and granted peace, and he receives all the glory and honor. Are you starting to get a sense that this prayer, the very core of this prayer, is that we are a worshiping people? Because there's nothing in this prayer that magnifies man. You know, the stupid lie in the world that man is the measure of all things. The humanist manifesto. The prayer makes God at the center of all things. Not Dan. Not me. I don't exist for me. I live for another. His name stamped on the bottom of my shoe. He's in charge. He's the owner. I'm his. And so I'm here for his glory. I'm here for his kingdom. I'm here for his will. I need to be sustained. I need to be forgiven. I need to forgive. And I need to be carefully protected from falling into temptations. Why? You do a big circle. The whole reason why is my life exists for him. And if there is a lie, beloved, that we are combating daily in our world, and I'll say specifically in our American culture, it is that we exist for God and not for us. So, I want to challenge you. Uh, Lay a challenge on you this week. Pay extra careful attention to the news. I know, it's not easy. Pay Pay careful attention to the radio if you listen to the radio. Pay careful attention when unbelievers are around you. And I challenge you to listen very carefully in asking the question, who's that person living for? And who are they encouraging me to live for? And I I mean, you already know the answer. I know the answer. But it's interesting when you intentionally go and in the world we live in, ask the question, who is at the center of their life? You are called to be salt and light and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we were made for. And I tell you, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I am amazed at the stark contrast of the fallen and of the born again in this world. It's astounding. When we pray rightly, we are in a mental state of worship. As we pray unto him, we are holding him up as the one of supreme value. This truth is fantastic, and I pray that it will spur you on in your praying. And that's the, uh, really the core of what I'm trying to get at, guys, is 
I think the longer we're believers, the more our value system is completely transformed. Stuff I considered valuable has less value, and that which I didn't consider valuable is becoming more and more valuable. God's glory becomes of much greater value than money or or whatever this world can provide. I care about God. I want to see him glorified. And so I close by saying that I want to pray. It may sound kind of silly, but I want to pray the Lord would help us pray. Because I am thoroughly convinced from the scriptures this is nothing I can incur- this is nothing I can cause in you. This is nothing I can cause in me. I can't, through a sermon series, make us a praying people. Even that is utterly dependent upon the Lord. But I mean it, you guys. I think that this church stands or falls based on whether we are coming to him in prayer or not. So I want to just close by asking him that he would give us a fresh zeal to go before the throne when nobody's watching. Father, I I pray that you would help us to be a people of prayer. Lord, it's it's not as public. It it doesn't have as much... um, It's not as, as open and not as celebrated as other portions of tasks that we do in your service. But Father, the power, the power of your people is that we be a people who commune with our God. Lord Jesus, you stole yourself away so many times to speak to the Father. God, as the disciples asked you to teach them to pray, I I ask you, God, please teach us, teach Pacific Coast Bible Church how to pray and to grow in our understanding and knowledge, Lord, of what is of value to you. The value system of this world is so different than the value system I see in your word. So in your grace and by your spirit, Father, I ask that you would please give a fresh change in this local church. And help us to be a people that go before the throne of grace with great anticipation and joy. I am so grateful that, Father, you have called us and invited us into this relationship with you. And you have sovereignly opened our eyes to the truth. May we walk in that truth, Lord God.